Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me this morning is actor, commentator and election oracle Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Jav. Alex, after your predictions last week, have you got the lottery numbers? Uh, yes, but I'm obviously not going to share it. <laughs> that would be crazy. <laughs> off air, off air. So on that, I mean, it's safe to say the Tories haven't taken the by-election defeats well, isn't it? No. Um, I mean, I think the diplomatic description is that it has caused some soul-searching. That's <laughs> that's the shorthand <laughs> for that. The less diplomatic description, I think, involves rats and the sack. Nadine Doris, especially, I think, has been very feisty, having a very, very public, very, very hilarious row with MP Paul Holmes on uh, Twitter. Both of them basically going, no, you're awful because... And both of them being completely right in every single statement. <laughs> oh dear, this is turning into another edition of Gloadcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but more generally, I think it's been an opportunity for, for basically every backseat driver to say, as I have been saying, what we need to do is X, when arguably one of the fundamental issues for the Tory party has been the number of backseat drivers and what they need to do is shut up. You know, a lot of voices there, a lot of cooks in that kitchen. Yeah, and that's that's really just, it's, it's strange that there's been soul searching, but still not not those lessons learned that maybe just a, a period of shutting up a little bit might, yeah, be, might be quite helpful. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you've got Liz Truss about to publish an alternative budget. <laughs> Literally, she's about to publish, you know, the person who whose last budget went so disastrously wrong, it brought her down as prime minister after 40 odd days, is about to publish an alternative budget side by side with the actual chancellor's budget. I mean, that that is mad by any stretch. She hopes it'd be done properly this time, Alex. It wasn't <laughs> it wasn't done properly. On the other hand, I mean you mentioned our, our bit of gloating there, but Labour really are are pretty much on cloud nine, aren't they? Should we expect them to start being even more bold and pushing harder on multiple fronts because of this? I think we will see an expansion of the seats that they will target for sure, which means much more serious about selection in those seats. You know, because you do select someone very differently in a seat that you expect to lose to a seat that you expect to win. 
and budgeting differently because they will have to spread the money that they've got in the coffers more widely. But whether that causes a sudden boldness in policy, I don't know. It might actually do the opposite because by making a larger swathe of conservative seats possibly available, it might actually push Labour's message more to the centre in order to make this, them, themselves attractive to those seats. Or they might decide, the, you know, the alternative is that they might decide that actually we will concentrate on an 80-seat majority, let's say, or a 60-seat majority, which will be easier to get and make our manifesto a bit bolder. I mean, having seen Starmer for the last few years, it sounds like it's the former he will go for. He will go for the widest possible appeal. So I don't think I would expect a bolder message, but I would expect a much wider push around the country. With the Tories on what they specifically might do to react to this, they're, they're talking about tax cuts as ever, sort of particularly voices on the right. Are we going to see more kind of desperate rolls of the dice become a tax cut front they've they've spoken about that before and how in the mm. inflation context that doesn't make sense but now it seems like sunak has been leaned towards it despite that flying in the face of his own plans it's like they're constantly in competition with themselves mm. isn't it so are we going to see those sort of desperate roles as they try and cling to any sort of electorate at this point without a doubt we will see that sort of thing and not just rolls of the dice they're also people positioning for a post-election leadership scrap, you see. So the people pushing in various directions, they're not just doing it with this next election in mind, but they're doing it with the contest that will probably follow it. For which, incidentally, people will need to keep their seat, right? Yeah. And this is an aspect that I think has been discussed hardly at all after the two by-election defeats. There is a convoluted way involving an ally standing down in a by-election, you know, for someone who's not an MP to become leader of the party, or maybe someone, you know, being elevated to the Lords and then resigning. But for all intents and purposes, really, those are very complicated. If you lose your seat, you're out of the running for that first contest, right? And that will intensify the scrap we're seeing significantly. I mean, Suella Braveman is the 61st safest seat. <laughs> James Cleverley's seat is 69th safest, both less safe than Tamworth. Polling suggests that Michelle Donnellan's seat is vulnerable to the Lib Dems. Priti Patel is defending what now looks like a slim 30% majority. On current national polls, people like Robert Jenrick or Penny Mordaunt are toast in the next election. So the next leader will be decided in part on who gets to keep their seat. Kimi Badenoch is sitting pretty on one of genuinely the safest seats in the country, for instance. And so we mustn't misunderstand that aspect of what is going on now. There is a dual track one involves the Conservative Party in the next election. The other track involves people with personal ambition and their job, <laughs> you know, their actual position as MPs. 
Yeah, do we need to sort of take a step back and read everything they're saying through the lens of self-preservation, essentially, as well? Because it seems like you know they wanted to drag the party to the right, and for the Tories, maybe succumbing to the right hasn't worked so well. But for those individual figures, it might be bad for the party, but work well yeah. for them down the line. I mean, look, we're a progressive podcast, so we're always pushing for the uh, Conservative Party to not go to the far right as is correct, but would some other pivot help them at the moment? I don't know that the, that it would. They're just faced with a series of terrible choices because effectively it does look as if the country has decided that this change is necessary. And so nothing they offer will change that perception that they are a pretty knackered bunch that's out of ideas. On that sort of knackered bunch, I suppose uh, Jeremy Hunt is rumoured to be considering not standing for the next election. Obviously, totally a rumour at the moment. His spokesman saying that it's still the plan very much for him to to run. But how alarmed should Rishi Sunak be that this sort of gossip is even flying around, whether it's whether it's completely true or not? Oh, I think very alarmed for for, for two reasons. First, I think it boosts Starmer's pitch because it makes it very difficult for Sunak to say, we are a safer quartet of hands than Starmer and Reeves when Hunt is going around letting it be known through proxies that he's not going to stick around. Second, I think it makes Hunt much less likely to take irresponsible gambles and do massive electioneering tax cuts, for instance. Because if he's not looking at re-election, if he's not looking at coming back as chancellor, then leaving the economy in a better state than he found it now becomes his legacy. And so he's much less likely to succumb to people saying, you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to help us with the next election. If that means that he leaves the country's finances in a much worse state than he found them. So that might be a really tricky balance for Sunak to deal with, having a chancellor that's basically looking at genuinely the economic long term rather than giveaways to help his party. And I think Hunt will not be shuffled out, but many are predicting that a reshuffle is coming and coming very soon, possibly even at the end of this week for Sunak, because I think the by-election losses were so bad that he will need to be seen to be doing something. Looking again at a specific member of the cabinet here, we've got Suella Braverman, who is meeting up with the Met Police boss, Mark Rowley, this Mm. week. What should we be looking out for in that meeting and, well, from that meeting? Posturing. (laughs) That's always on the menu with Braverman. I mean, apparently the meeting was already scheduled before the protests at the weekend that caused the sort of the, the ruckus with people saying, why didn't the police arrest people chanting jihad? And the police saying jihad means many things. And when you read stuff saying sources close to Suella Braveman, I think that means her spad or campaign manager. And this really smacks of her jumping on a bandwagon to get her a couple of front pages. 
because there had been an outcry over the weekend about what was going on, you can almost guarantee that Braveman is going to pop up and say, well, I'm going to read them the riot act, pardon the pun. Whether it results in an actual change in policy, I don't know. Operational matters are meant to be non-political. So I think by announcing that she will challenge the head of the Met on why they didn't make a particular operational decision. I mean, I think that's quite dangerous in in its own right, because then the police might go really over the top next time there's a protest and point to the Home Secretary and say, well, she told us, you know, she ordered us to do it. She's not meant to, but she did. So, yeah, I I think that's more public-facing than private-facing, if I'm honest. Looking at another news from the weekend that might spill over into the week, so Sunak personally had a a bit of embarrassment with his old phone number Mm. being leaked. I mean, it is embarrassing, but it's also not simply just quite concerning that that info could be so vulnerable, or is that that been read into a little bit too much? Well, because it wasn't just his number, was it? it? You know, someone called it apparently and it was ringing and his voicemail recording was there as well and could take voicemails, which means his number is sort of still his and on and active. I mean, if he still carries that phone, it must be a huge security risk, right? Because someone could track its location relatively easily. I mean, I'm not a spy, but I would imagine it's not the most difficult thing in the world to hack a sort of find your phone type app and track a number if you know the person has it with them. So absolutely massive security risk. And also, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about last week, which is there just seems to be no system in terms of security behind the administration, not just this administration, any administration. It just seems to be quite haphazard. Really, there should be a system that, you know, when you when you become prime minister, they take away from you certain things and give you certain things that are the secure versions, right? Yeah. It, it should be a, a checklist. It shouldn't be a, oh, you know, we asked, but maybe he didn't give all of them back. Yeah, it seems quite basic that, you know, if I were to somehow randomly be elevated to prime minister, that they would they would take away my shitty old iPhone that I've got yeah, here I mean, and give me something a bit more robust and secure. Right. It is weird, right, that it's sort of, oh, uh, we don't know. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe he still has it. Yeah, I imagine his phone's much nicer than mine, though, so maybe that's harder harder for him to feel like he should give it up. What might this mean? So there is a another underlying sort of storyline here, though, in terms of the, the COVID inquiry, because he'd said about not being able to get old WhatsApps, but then yeah. this phone number clearly is going through to a voicemail. So might that also rumble into that as well? Yeah, I, as I, and as I understand it, he said, because we haven't seen his witness statement, but reporter that he said, he told the COVID inquiry that the number was no longer operational, not just that he couldn't retrieve the messages. Mm. I think that puts him in a really difficult position. But we shall see, especially because, you know, he joins that now growing club of people who have not handed over 
really their messages from that period to the COVID inquiry. On the COVID inquiry, by the way, can we take a moment to wish all the best to a uh, top civil servant, Simon Case, uh, who having had hugely embarrassing communications revealed and being due to give evidence in the coming days, has been struck by a mysterious illness. So get well soon, Simon. <laughs> Finally, so it's a, on the domestic side of things, it's a, it's a year into Sunak's tenure. There are rumblings of no confidence letters being sent to Graham Brady. Obviously, we never know the exact number that might be submitted until it actually triggers a vote. Do you think there is any chance of that happening? <laughs> this is the Conservative Party, so of course. There, there's no Andrew there's Bridgen, though. That so without Andrew Bridgen, he can't, he I, can't start it. I, look, I, I don't know. The, the problem is this, okay? So rationally, of course, it shouldn't happen because it would be a disaster for the Conservative Party. But the problem is that each MP doesn't have an absolute clear idea of what other MPs are doing. And so you know, they act like a, a sort of murmuration of starlings which move in one direction and that. And, and the shapes they make may appear to be um, particular, but are actually quite random. And so <laughs> I don't know what shape that, that uh, flock of birds will make next. Because as, as Johnson quite rightly observed, when the flock moves, it moves suddenly and with force. And like I said, you know, you you throw in the rest of the considerations we've been talking about, you know, the need to save their own job. I mean, some of those people, they don't really have bright career prospects. Being an MP is their living. And so, you know, if they think that, if they come to believe genuinely that they stand no chance of keeping their job with Sunak at the helm, and despite the trauma of another leadership election, they might do better, they might have more of a prospect of keeping their job, even if they lose the next election, then absolutely they will send those letters in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So now turning to, to the situation in Israel and Gaza, what is the latest that we know of what is happening from there, Alex? So, uh, I mean, more awfulness, um, more images of, you know, children being hurt and, and body bags. I mean, the, the whole thing is just horrific. Um, Israel are reputed to be about to show uh, today, Monday, journalists the unedited footage of what they recovered from uh, the cameras of people who perpetrated the attack. And I would imagine it makes for really horrible viewing. On the slightly brighter side, over the weekend, we did see the release of two hostages. 
there are, of course, many more to go. There, there are 200 more. And we saw 28 trucks get through on Saturday and 19 get through on Sunday. As a UN representative pointed out, before recent events, up to 400 trucks of aid needed to go into Gaza on a daily basis, okay? So 20 trucks going in at a time when Gaza is not operating as it did before, and almost half the population is displaced to the sort of southern part of it, 20 trucks is nothing. It's a drop in the ocean. But what it does show is that there is a dialogue behind the scenes. So even those two hostages being released, even those 20 trucks going in, they point to some kind of negotiation, some kind of Georgia going on in the background, which has to be a positive thing, right? Because ultimately, yeah. that is the only way this will end. Is there much indication as to whether you know, Israel mounting a ground invasion was expected to possibly have happened mm. before this point. Does it appear like that will happen this week or is that becoming more, I mean, less less of a possibility, as you say, because there's there's dialogue? Do we know know what the, the state seems to be there? I mean, I think that's the push. The push is that while there is there are talks still going on, Israel should hold off. And in the indication from the fact that it hasn't happened yet is that Israel has been holding off. But I think there is a cutoff point, right? Because I think that you will need to see either much more significant numbers of hostages being released or, you know, significant amount of aid going in on the Palestinian side in order for the talks to advance. And the fear I suspect on Israel's side will be that every day that they give Hamas gives them more time to set up defense positions, to set up booby traps, to, you know, all of the stuff that they know they will face when they ultimately go into Gaza. So, yes, I think unless those negotiations bear much bigger fruit very quickly, I think it is simply a matter of a delay of the ground operation rather than a, a complete postponement of it. Beyond just Israel and Gaza, there are obviously other tensions within the region and around the Middle East. Is there an increasing risk of wider escalation? Is that something that we're seeing becoming more of a concern? The fact that it hasn't happened yet has to be quite encouraging, right? Because logically, you would think that in the heat of those first few hours, in the heat of those first couple of days, was a more dangerous period for someone else to get involved than 10 days later. That's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation, unfortunately, is that, as historians point out very frequently, most major wars involve some huge miscalculation at some point, some mistake, some overreaction. And with tensions being so high, the chance of a mistake, of a miscalculation, of an overreaction, of someone firing a rocket by accident, of someone acting as a rogue, you know, they are just massive at the moment. And, and we just have to hope for some good luck on that front.
finally this morning, looking to Ukraine, what are the latest developments that we're seeing there? I mean, the latest developments in the war is that there's a lot of rain, which, as we have often discussed, would signal a sort of end to the advance and a sort of uh, uh, bedding in of troops where they currently are, a consolidation of ground rather than further movement. What's going on internationally, though, is just as important because there's been a huge drive, I think, to remind people that the conflict there is still ongoing. Ukrainian leadership, I think, is worried quite rightly in several ways about the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Firstly, because it draws on the same budgets and the same stocks of ammunition and weapons that the West can provide, right? There's a practical aspect to it that it diverts resources to that region. But the second thing is that it it diverts attention away from Ukraine and a sort of international focus, NATO's focus, away from Ukraine. And we're seeing that play out in the States, which has only temporarily approved a sort of budget for the next bid. Now the Republicans have no speaker, so the House of Representatives is paralyzed, so you know, who knows what will happen next. All of that is, is really vital to Ukraine. Alex, thank you for joining me this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, remember that you can back us on Patreon. For £3 a month, you'll get all of our episodes ad-free and early. Thanks for joining us this morning. Come back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis and Alex Andreu. The producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production.